Our reading for today is Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that we can, with reverence, serve you. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So as we come to God's word, let's pray together. Lord, as we reflect on Psalm 130 together, we ask that you teach us to wait on you and to put our hope in you, especially when it seems that we're crying out from the depths. And we ask this in the name of him who descended to the depths of hell for our sake, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour. Amen. Well, throughout the autumn term, so far we've been exploring the Psalms, the prayer book at the heart of the Bible. And we've been doing that in order to build up our capacity to pray to God any time, any place, any prayer. And perhaps the overarching idea or the, the rationale behind this series of sermons is that God wants us to enjoy a conversational relationship with him. And that involves being able to communicate freely with him, no matter what season of life we're in, whether we're full of praise and singing and dancing, whether we're deeply conscious of sin, whether we're quietly contemplating the wonder of all that God is for us, or whether we're incandescently shaking our fists at God in rage. In Psalm 130 today, we have a psalm that teaches us how to hope in God from out of the depths. Now, Psalm 130 is one of 15 psalms uh, from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134, known as the Psalms of Ascent. The Psalms of Ascent are a diverse group of songs sung by pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem for one of the three major Jewish festivals. Therefore, we're to imagine the singer of this psalm on a journey towards the temple. And as we study Psalm 130, we see that the singer themselves is on a journey within the psalm. The psalm climbs from the depths of misery in verses 1 and 2, to the confession of sin in verses 3 and 4, to hope in God in verses 5 and 6, and finally to the confident assurance that such hope in God will not be disappointed, verses 7 and 8. Now, like some other psalms we've looked at, Psalm 130 is a lament. But it has a strong penitential theme, which is geared at helping worshippers see themselves as forgiven people. So what I want to do this morning is simply go through the psalm section by section and then finish by asking a very practical question. What does it actually mean to wait for the Lord and to put our hope in him? So let's start with that first section, verses one and two. Like many of the psalms we've looked at already, this one is voiced from the midst of acute pain. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. In the Hebrew imagination, the depths are an image of the watery chaos, the deep, unruly sea that has the power to swamp 
boats and drown the sailors. That's what the psalmist has in view here. And this is a prayer uttered from the belly of the beast by someone who feels that they're sinking in the storm. However, as the biblical scholar John Goldingay points out, often the fact that you're drowning is not your fault, but in this psalm, it is your fault. You know, the implication of the verses that follow is that the mess that the psalmist is in is a mess of his own making. It's the awareness of sin that overwhelms and leads to that cry for mercy that we see in verse 2. Now, the first thing we need to notice is that the depths don't silence the psalmist. He doesn't stop praying, even from the abyss. The great 19th century prince of preachers, Charles Spurgeon, said of verse 1, Prayer is never more real and acceptable than when it rises out of the worst places. The more distressed we are, the more excellent is the faith which trusts bravely in the Lord and therefore appeals to him and to him alone. In other words, the diamond of prayer shines brightest in the darkness. There is something very special about the faith that keeps calling out to God when you're being engulfed by the chaos waters. Why? Because it's an expression of knowing deep down that what I need most is God. And I'm not going to let go of him. The second thing we need to take away from this opening section of Psalm 130 is in verse 2. Namely that this is a cry for mercy. The psalmist doesn't make his appeal for help on the grounds of his moral performance. He doesn't say, Lord, if you weigh my life in the balance, you'll see there's more good than bad. So please help me. That's not what he says. Not at all. There is here a recognition of his own helplessness. He doesn't come to God from a position of strength to demand what is his due, but to plead for something he doesn't deserve. He comes to God empty handed, as in the words of the wonderful old hymn. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, saviour, or I die. There's something very instructive here about how to pray from the depths. Step one of hoping in God, despair of yourself. Dane Ortland writes, if you feel stuck, defeated by old sin patterns, leverage that despair into the healthy sense of self-futility that is the door through which you must pass if you are to get real spiritual traction. Let your emptiness humble you. Let it take you down. You know, it's a particular aspect of the gospel that we're at our unhealthiest when we think we're healthy. And we're well on the road to recovery when we acknowledge our sickness. We, we think we come to God by doing it right. But the gospel says that God comes to us when we know we're doing it wrong. And so the foundation of hoping God is knowing that you need him. So having cried out for mercy from the depths, verses one and two, the song now in verses three and four acknowledges that if God were to keep a record of all our sins in a book, no one could stand. Despite the way we sometimes think or act, none of us really wants to be judged by our moral records. 
You see, sin is more than a few bad behaviours. Sin is a fundamental failure to live out our calling, our vocation as God's image bearers in the world. The problem isn't just that we've said a few cross words every now and then. The problem is that we've given our ultimate allegiance and significance to created things rather than our creator. And so sticking a £10 note in the charity collection bucket doesn't really mean much when you're up on charges of sedition against the King of Kings. If the all-seeing, all-knowing, perfectly holy God were to uphold the letter of the law, all of us would be found guilty and we could have no complaints whatsoever. And so if the basis of our belovedness before God is our biography, i.e. what we've done with our lives, then no one will find acceptance with God on the day of judgment. Our hope must be in something other than our own goodness. The psalmist says, but with you there is forgiveness. What a blessed but that is. You know I like the big buts of the Bible. Here's another one. But with you there is forgiveness. With you. With me there isn't forgiveness. But with God there is forgiveness. And more than that, God is not loath to forgive. Rather, as the prayer of humble access puts it, our Lord is the same Lord whose nature is always to have mercy. We don't have to twist God's arm behind his back to persuade him to show us mercy. Mercy is his middle name. In his mercy, he has provided in his son a sacrifice for the sins of the whole world, available to all who come to him in faith, confessing their sins. Some of the historic prayers of the church speak into this sense of self-despair and throwing ourselves on God's mercy, which is what verses four, 3 and 4 are all about. So one communion prayer asks, do not weigh our merits, but pardon our offences. The prayer of humble access before receiving communion says, we do not presume to come to this your table, O merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in your abundant and great mercies. That's the spirit of verses three and four. But before we move on to the third section of the psalm, I just want to draw our attention to the second half of verse four. Verse four says, but with you there is forgiveness. And then the second half of that verse, so that we can with reverence serve you. Now we tend to think that it's obedience that leads to forgiveness. That is, if we rack up and up enough brownie points with God he's contractually bound to let us off the hook but that's not what the psalm says it's the other way round. there is forgiveness with God so that we can serve him forgiveness is meant to lead to obedience as Charles Spurgeon observes none fear the Lord like those who have experienced his forgiving love God's grace gives us a greater reverence for him. Knowing ourselves to be forgiven, hell-deserving sinners inspires a holy fear of offending him and a holy desire to please him. And so having called out to God from the depths, verses 1 and 2, having flung himself upon God's mercy, verses 3 and 4, in verses 5 and 6, the psalmist waits. I wait for the Lord. My whole being 
waits and in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. What's the essence of this waiting? Well, fundamentally, I think it's a recognition that the bull's in God's court. Our part is to confess our sin. God's part is to forgive it. Waiting on God means acknowledging our total dependence on him. Does anyone remember back in the back in the noughties, those wristbands that had WWJD on them? Well, I remember there also used to be some that had frog on them, F-R-O-G. And those ones stood for fully reliant on God. That's what waiting for God means. Waiting for the Lord is a posture of the heart. It's a heart posture that recognises that the decisive work in any given situation is God's. You know, a close parallel to the sentiment of verses 5 and 6 is found in Psalm 123, another psalm of ascent, in which we read this. As the eyes of slaves look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a female slave look to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he shows us mercy. Waiting for the Lord means looking to him. It means aligning ourselves with his will, with his schedule, his timetable. It also means recognising then that we're not in control. The image that comes to my mind is of a, a well-trained dog looking up beggingly to its master with a bit of a whimper as if to say, walkies? You know, we, we live in a world here in this country, in the modern, uh, modern UK, that hates waiting for anything. We watch TV on demand. We have a buy it now uh, button. Uh, we order something on Amazon Prime one evening, it arrives the next day. I suspect that one of the reasons that we hate waiting is because it reminds us that we're not in control of our lives. That is that we're not God's. To wait at the bus stop is to be at the mercy of the timetable, the traffic, the bus driver, the bus's own reliability. But waiting for the Lord is a, a key part of our spiritual formation of our becoming more like Jesus. John Ortberg wisely says that biblically, waiting is not just something we have to do until we get what we want. Waiting is part of the process of becoming what God wants us to be. In other words, the very act of waiting does something to us. It changes us. It humbles us. And yet I want you to notice something else about the waiting of verses 5 and 6. It's not just a waiting for something, it's a waiting for someone. I wait for the Lord. Derek Kidner in his excellent commentary on the Psalms writes this. He says, it is the Lord himself, not simply escape from punishment that the writer longs for. In plain terms, he speaks of a promise, his word to cling to and in picturing the watchman he chooses as his simile a hope that will not fail night may seem endless but morning is certain and it's time determined 
there's also an urgency about this image, just as the watchman longs for the morning and the assurance that no surprise attack is coming in the night. So the psalmist feels a sense of holy desperation in his waiting. He's hungry for what only God can give. And so we come to the final movement of Psalm 130, which is as the writer calls the people of God to put their hope in the Lord. While we wait, we're not just biding our time, hoping that somehow our situation will eventually change. Hope isn't a vague wish that things will get better, as we often use the word hope today. Rather, as John Piper says, biblical hope is biblical faith in the future tense. It's based on the rock solid promises of God. And we see that back in verse five, I will wait for the Lord. My whole being waits and in his word, I put my hope. So biblical hope isn't so much hope in a particular outcome as it's hope in God himself. When we put our hope in the Lord, we put our hope in one who will not disappoint us. Our hope is in who he is. That with the Lord is unfailing love. Let me just share with you this quote from J.R. Packer. It's quite long, but it's just beautiful that speaks into this. He says, optimism hopes for the best without any guarantee of its arriving and is often no more than whistling in the dark. Christian hope, by contrast, is faith looking ahead to the fulfilment of the promises of God. As when the Anglican burial service interrs the corpse in sure and certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Optimism is a wish without warrant. Christian hope is a certainty guaranteed by God himself. Optimism reflects ignorance as to whether good things will ever actually come. Christian hope expresses knowledge that every day of his life and every moment beyond it, the believer can say with truth on the basis of God's own commitment that the best is yet to come. Optimism is not the same thing as hope. Christian hope is rooted in the character of God. It's an expectation of future good based on God's promises and his faithfulness in the past. When the psalmist says he himself will redeem Israel from all their sins, that isn't wishful thinking. It's based on who God has shown himself to be. For example, when uh, Exodus 34, when God passes before Moses and proclaims his character, he says, the Lord, the Lord, the gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. It's based on promises like this one from uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 7 verse 14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. And let's not miss this aspect of the psalmist's hope either. With him is full redemption. Not partial redemption, not I'll meet you halfway redemption, not you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours redemption. No, full redemption. Redemption is of grace from first to last. It's all gift. 
nothing in my hand I bring. I love the way the old King James Version translates it. With him is plenteous redemption, not a little redemption, plenteous redemption. You see, the word redemption refers to the price paid to set a slave free. So to say with him is full or plenteous redemption means God intends to save us to the uttermost. He intends to possess us, not in part, but entirely. We've been paid for in full. Therefore, he won't tolerate sin in us because he's brought us out of slavery to sins. Listen, Christians, you are not your own. You have been paid for in full. So let's move now to think about how this rubber hits the road. Psalm 130 is a song of hope. I said at the beginning that I wanted to finish by asking what, practically speaking, it means to wait for the Lord and put our hope in him. And so that's what I want to spend the last few minutes doing now. Although the specific context of the psalm is uh, amid the conviction of sin, I think the principles we see here are also applicable more generally for any situation in which hope is required. And in particular, I want to highlight three steps we can take to wait on the Lord and to make it easy for us to remember and hopefully, therefore also to put into practice, they're an ABC. First, admit your need. Second, bring your need to God in prayer. And third, count on God's character and promises. The first step to hope, as paradoxical as it may seem, is hopelessness in self. Like the psalmist, we have to admit to ourselves and to God that we're not in control and that we can do nothing to drag ourselves out of the depths in which we find ourselves. We've got to renounce self-help hacks and instead throw ourselves on the mercy of God. Jesus puts it bluntly in John 15 when he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And therefore, real hope begins when we realise our own limitations, when we realise that real hope doesn't rest in me and what I can do, but in God and what God can do. Waiting for God means acknowledging that the door behind which we're trapped is locked from the outside and only he can open it. Second, we've got to let your self-despair lead you to prayer. The first cry of hope is, Lord, I need you. Waiting for the Lord is essentially an attitude of dependence. It's saying to God, I can't do anything without you. And we catch a glimpse of what this means in practice by looking at a negative image of it. Perhaps the prime example of the negative image, i.e. not waiting for the Lord, is found in Isaiah chapters 30 and 31. So just to put that into context, God's people are in trouble. They're under threat from the army of the Assyrians. But, but God sees that there's an even greater danger than the infamous Assyrian war machine. And that is the temptation to run to Egypt instead of God for help. Instead of waiting for God's help, they run to the help they can see, which turns out to be no help at all. So this is Isaiah 30 verses 1 and 2. Woe to the obstinate children, declares the Lord, to those who carry out plans that are not mine, forming an alliance, but not of my spirit, heaping sin upon sin, who go down to Egypt without consulting me, 
who look for help to Pharaoh's protection, to Egypt's shade for refuge. And then let's move on to chapter 31, verse 1, which further underlines the point. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in the multitude of their chariots and in the great strength of their horsemen, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. So what does it mean to wait for the Lord? Well, it means emphatically not that. God says, you didn't ask me anything. You didn't look to me for help. You didn't ask what I thought. You just rushed headfirst down to Egypt as fast as you could. And so from this negative image, you can see what it means to wait for the Lord, can't you? It means seeking the counsel of God. It means that before we do anything else, before we come up with plans to fix the situation and then ask God to bless them, it means making him the first point of contact. It means taking the time to listen to what he has to say, not assuming that we know best. It means not rushing straight away to fix things by ourselves with the resources that we can see to hand around us. It means quickly and humbly bringing our need to God in prayer. Thirdly and finally, waiting on the Lord means counting on God's character and promises. Now, as you, most of you know by now, one of my holy heroes is the Yorkshire-born missionary to China, James Hudson Taylor. One of the things I admire most about him is his faith to take God completely at his words. Uh, this quote sums up his attitude to a T. He says, there is a living God. He has spoken in the Bible. He means what he says and will do all he has promised. The secret of biblical hope is looking to God, focusing on him, not our problems. Fix your heart on who God is, as he's revealed himself in the person of Jesus. Fix your heart on what he's done in the past, witnesses witnessed in the pages of the Bible. Fix your heart on what he's promised for the future, for he is ever reliable. Israel, put your hope in the Lord. For with the Lord is unfailing love and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. Let's pray. Lord, with you is unfailing love and full redemption. We're so sorry for the times when we're like the people in Isaiah 30 and 31, rushing off to try and fix our own problems without consulting you and often making more of a mess of the situation as a result. Teach us to wait on you, to admit that we need you every hour of every day, and to bring our needs to you quickly and humbly in prayer, and to count on your character and promises, knowing that you can't be untrue to yourself. Thank you that our ultimate hope is in the full redemption that you have purchased for us, through your son's death and resurrection. Keep us looking to you as we await the day when he returns and sin is done away with forever. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.